We're continuing in our study in the book of Romans and we're into chapter 7. But I would like us to begin our reading from the end of chapter 6. And there's a reason for that. I'll explain in a little moment. But we need to pick up our reading from verse 19 of chapter 6. And we're going to read through to verse 13 of chapter 7. And an overarching theme for today is that Paul is continuing to explain that a relationship with the law, particularly for the Jewish people in the Church of God in Rome, their association with the law has been broken. They've been brought into a, a new life of freedom through the salvation that God has brought about through the Lord Jesus and a freedom that has come as a consequence of the Holy Spirit coming to be with the believer. If you remember, uh, a few weeks back I was saying that there was probably division in the church with Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus who probably had a tendency to hold on to the things of their, of their history and their heritage. And I continued to see that the things of the law, the Torah, the instruction for God's Old Testament people, Israel, they considered those as still vitally important as part of salvation. And that was a problem in the early churches and that had to be resolved. And Paul is appealing to this element of the church and saying to them that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. You're set free from having to keep all of the uh, fine detail of the law. Christ has come to set you free from that and to bring you into a new relationship with him that brings you into freedom and salvation. So we'll explore that more in a moment. Let's take our reading from Romans chapter 6 and uh, verse 19 onwards. Paul says, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. We thank God that uh, he uses human examples to help us understand God's word. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the reason we've read that is because in the Greek language in which the, um, the New Testament was written, there's then a conjunction, a joining word, that doesn't actually get translated in the NIV that many of us are reading. And it's the little word or. So that really should be there at the start of chapter 7. So a chapter division sometimes makes us think it's a whole new uh, bit of thought we're supposed to be looking at. But it's not here. Paul is continuing. So... With that in mind, let's read verse 23 again. For the word, wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then... If she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, 
she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We need to say this right at the very beginning. You can see in the latter section of what we've just read that Paul is saying that the law that was given by God to the Jews was good. It's not a bad thing. It was a good thing. That's because somebody in the community of the, of the children of Israel, the Jews, who would put their trust in the promises that God had made for them, that was faith. They would then see that God was for them and they would want to live the way that God instructed them to because they knew that they were wayward and they were sinners. And God gave the instructions as to what that life should look like through the law. The situation it had come to when the time the Lord Jesus was here and he was interacting with the Pharisees, they saw that to observe the law in its minute details was how you would be saved. It was, you took that law and you tried to live it out as best you can to impress God so that you would be saved. The law wasn't bad. The law was good. The law was a grace from God. It says that in John chapter 1. We have received grace upon grace. And it's in the context there in John 1, as he says, of Jesus having come into the world after the law was given. So it's grace upon grace. So the, I hope you see the, the important thing here is the law is not a bad thing. The law that God had given was to be for those who would put their faith and their trust in God to deliver on his promises, to, uh, to bring his people to himself and to enjoy a life. And they wanted to know how to live. And God says, this is how you're to live. This is how your life will look like if you're trusting in me. So it was a guidance for those whose faith was in God. By the time it come to the Lord Jesus, people were putting their faith in the law rather than in God. 
That needs to be said because that's an important thing. We're not um, dissing the law, to use an up-to-date phrase. The law had its purpose in God's gracious plan. And as Paul says here, the purpose of the law was actually to expose how deep was sin in each individual. It's deep-rooted. And it actually exposes that out, there is no way that we can live a life that in any way would please God in our own strength. We have to trust that God will do something for us. It was the same in the Old Testament. The people who trusted in God found freedom in the law. Go and read Psalm 119. Verse 45 in particular, the psalmist there says, I have found freedom by searching out and keeping your statutes. There was somebody who trusted in God and saw that the law was a guide for life. That's important for us to get. So the law, as Paul says, revealed the depths of sin and um, how it was just in each one of us and was throughout everything that we did. It exposed sin for what it really was. And at the end of chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. So when we see that we're, we're sinners and we're slaves to sin, it's going to result in death, not the life that God wanted for us. Now the law was not a solution for sin. God had said he was going to provide a solution. And the people of Israel, going back down the centuries, they were looking to God to provide that solution. And they were trusting that he would deliver on his promise to provide a means by which their sins would be forgiven. And trusting that, then they lived the law. But here, what Paul is telling us is the solution for sin has arrived in God's timing. And that solution for sin was God himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to be with us. The gracious gift of eternal life is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't receive that through just mere observance of the law, you get it through seeing that in Christ Jesus the Lord, God has done the work that offers then the gift of eternal life to everyone. Steve last week said that Romans chapter 6 and told us rightly that baptism, water baptism then, is a symbol of somebody who recognises that when they've put their trust in Jesus Christ as the saviour that God has provided, the solution for sin. Greater than the law. He is the fulfillment of the law. That person who puts their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. Then would be baptised. Full immersion in water. Because it was a symbol of dying with Christ. Their old life was, was killed off. Christ when he died on the cross. Died in place of sinners. And our sin was counted to him when he was sinless. And he died our death. And somebody being baptised would be going down into death in the symbolic way to God and to others. To say, I recognise what's happened here. My old life is gone. You're buried with him. And then you're raised to walk in newness of life. So the old is gone. And the new has come to borrow from another place. The life that's now lived... Paul tells us in chapter 6 and into chapter 7. The life 
that is lived by a disciple of the Lord Jesus, somebody who trusts him and follows him, that life is then lived in the power and the freedom that comes from the forgiveness of sins, but also the power and freedom that comes from the Spirit of God who is given to us. So notice back in verse 1 of chapter 7, the reason for saying all of that is that Paul was addressing this particular faction, if I can call it that, in the church, if you remember. I said that there were these uh, Jewish people who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus, but they were holding on so tightly to the observance of the law. The things that the law said, like you're to keep the Sabbath day, uh, you're not to eat this or eat that, and you're not to mix fibres in your clothes and, and so on. They were, they were consumed with thinking that that was necessary to secure their salvation. Paul is making the case, no, you don't need to. Because no human being in all of their sinfulness could ever keep the law fully, but Christ has. Christ has come in all of his sinlessness and he has fulfilled the law. Jesus himself said that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, as, he, as he's in the middle of his preaching and the Sermon on the Mount, and he's trying to explain what the heart of the law was really all about, because the people had been misinstructed. He says, do not presume that I've come to abolish the law. He wasn't going to put it away as a bad thing. This is Matthew five seventeen, Or the prophets, he said, did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He had come to show that in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, all that God had been signposting was now fulfilled in him and in his life. So Paul in verse 1 of chapter 7 here, you notice it's in there, maybe in parenthesis or between whatever those long dashes are called. I am speaking to those who know the law. So he's addressing this faction in the church and he's trying to tell them, Look, you've been set free from this need that you have in your minds to observe all of these things so that you might secure your salvation. Your salvation is secured in Christ Jesus. It's a gift from God received by faith. And then he uses uh, an analogy, doesn't he, that we can pick up on here. And verse 19 of chapter 6, you remember he, he'd already said, I'm using an example from everyday life and he was talking about slavery not slavery in the way that we understand it from the 15th 16th century through uh, in the west and so on that's that's a hideous thing but slavery in bible times was a way that people would actually be able to climb up the social ladder and provide for themselves and their families it was a positive thing you would willingly give yourself into service to someone knowing that there would be benefits from that for you and your family that's what Paul was saying. I'm using a human example. He says you were slaves to sin. Really bad taskmaster. And actually it would kill you. But now you've become slaves to God. And all of the blessing that God wants for you to have in life. That's yours through faith in Christ. So Paul uses that analogy. Or that example. And then he brings in another one. Just to in a sense reinforce the point again. For these Jewish believers. And he says think of marriage. And he says marriage between a man and a woman, it's insoluble while both are alive. Now, he does pick on, on one side. He didn't, he's done that just to make a point. It's, uh, he's not picking on one side rather than the other. But the, the, the basic message is here 
And it's something that goes back even beyond the Torah that was given to Moses for Israel. It goes back right into the, the earliest chapters of our Bibles, Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2, where God's uh, basic law, if I can say, about how humanity should exist was given. Genesis 2.24 speaks of how a man should leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they become one flesh. And, and that was then spoken of as something that was insoluble. And that was known by people. That marriage, then you entered into it, whether you were a believer in the Lord Jesus or not, it was a generally held principle that once you were in a marriage, you were bound to each other until one would die. And then there would be a freedom to marry another. He uses that as an analogy. Of course, any analogy and illustration has its limitations. And where he goes with this then is he says, look, we can use that as an, an illustration, but realize that when you've died, your old life has died. Romans 6, you have died with Christ, but then you've actually been given a new life. You're set free from the law that you were in relationship with. So you can see how this was primarily directed at the Jews. So you're, you're still so bound to your relationship to the law that you think that that is going to bring you salvation. Your faith in Christ has brought you salvation. You've been set free. That, that relationship has been broken. You've died to that, Paul has said in this text. And now your, your new relationship is with Jesus Christ. In spiritual terms, a person who has died to what controls us, which is sin, and the law, which reveals what sin is, is then released from that law to serve God in the new life that is produced by the Spirit of God, who's given to us at the moment of our salvation. I'm going to say again, the law is a good thing. Why? Here's another reason. It reveals the character of the holiness of God, doesn't it? So the law was a good thing, but it was pointing forward to the fulfillment that God would show in his son, Jesus Christ, who came to be the saviour. Verse 4 of our text says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. The physical reality of the Messiah, God himself who has come, and his life and his death is the means by which you have died to that older system that God had put in place for those who trusted him and wanted to live for him. And also particularly in the time of Jesus, people were wanting to observe the law for their salvation rather than trusting God. He says, you, that's been broken when you've seen that Christ is the Messiah and his life lived here and his death died on the cross and his life received again through his resurrection. The second part of verse 4 of chapter 7 sees the purpose of that. So that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul goes on to speak about how just living a life that was channeled entirely into trying to observe the law, which then only really revealed your sinfulness, that would result in the fruit of death. So it wasn't going to lead anywhere. It was actually going to take you away from God because you were trusting in your own abilities rather than trusting God. 
But here he says, if you put your faith and your trust in Christ and realize that he has fulfilled all of God's expectations of you on your behalf and has died your death for the guilt of your sin, if you realize that and you realize also that he has been raised so that you can have life with him as a gift, if you realize all of that, then you've died to the law so that you might belong to another. So just as someone who might be in a marriage and their partner would die and there's then the freedom again to marry another person. So here Paul is using that analogy and it's all of its weakness. He's using it here to say, look, God has done this so that you might belong to another. And Paul clarifies it to him who was raised from the dead. There is nothing greater than to know in this life that we belong to Christ. He has come to secure us for himself. God himself has come, God the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. He has come and he has paid the price to secure us for himself. Do we all belong to Christ? We can say that we belong to Christ if we're saying that Christ is the fulfillment of all that God had said that was necessary for us to do that we could not do because we were sinners but he has done it for us it's when we say Jesus I thank you for dying for me for my guilt for my sin so that God you might then forgive me of that and I might step into this new life when we say that then the spirit will testify with our spirit that we're children of God we belong to God and we belong to Christ Jesus. We belong to another. To him who ra was raised from the dead. Here's another bit that's important. In order that we might bear fruit for God. Mentioned before. That Paul speaks of the fruitfulness. Of trying to secure your own salvation. In your own way. By whatever scheme. It's going to result in death. That's the fruit of it. But the life that God gives through faith in the Lord Jesus. And belonging to him, Christ's desire for each one of us is that we might bear fruit for God. So we might see a different life, a life of fruitfulness. If you think about marriage, one of the, uh, one of the prime purposes of marriage as we see it in Genesis chapter 1, 2 and uh, also 4 onwards and so on. Um, and this was repeated what was said to Adam and Eve was also repeated to Noah after the, after the flood. Be fruitful and multiply. It's one of the, the purposes and the blessings that can come to people in marriage is that they can have children that continue. It's God's way of, of continuing his image bearers on this earth in order that we might bear fruit for God. Our new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, our living Saviour, is to bring about a fruitfulness that, in a sense, continues God's purposes in this world. So verse 6 tells us, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Paul is telling the Jewish believers in Rome, who are so caught up with... Um, observing the, the things of the law and if you remember are being very judgmental about the Gentiles who are not 
He says, look, you have to realise you've stepped into a whole new experience of life with God. You belong to Christ and your life is to bear fruit for God now. And you do that in the new way of the Spirit. You do that through God's help. Because the Holy Spirit comes to be with us. He empowers us to live a life that we could never live for ourselves. Remember the Lord Jesus said in his conversation to the woman that he met at uh, Jacob's well. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He's speaking really about the whole of life. As well as when churches will gather for, for worship. We're to do that in the power of the spirit. We give our whole selves to that. And we'll get there in Romans chapter 12. Uh, when, if we're spared that long and uh, we can carry on our study maybe in your mind some of you who know your bibles genesis uh, not genesis galatians chapter 5 verse 22 and 23 come to mind so we serve in the newness of the spirit paul says we're to bear fruit for god because we belong to christ galatians 5 22 and 23 the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness self-control against such things there is no law so Paul was quite often in his letters repeating the same things to people in different places because the same problems persisted. So you can see how that links along with it. Paul realised in the latter section that we've read, and I don't want to spend any time on this particularly, that the law in his own experience, I believe, was a thing that actually caused sin to spring to life. That you see something, I think Giles the other week mentioned, it's just like, seeing a big red button that says don't press and you want to press it. That was a great illustration. That Paul, whenever he was back as, a, as this devout Jew, was looking at the law and it would tell him not to do something and he would find himself doing it. He has come himself to realise that that has gone now. That Christ has come, possessed him for himself. They might bear fruit for God. And by the power of the Spirit, he's able now to choose. No, I'm not going to push that button. I'm going to go forward in the life that God has given to me. So Paul finishes up, really, that section in verse 12. The law is holy. just want to reinforce this point. The law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous and good. It is. Christ is the fulfillment of that. And he brings those that are his into the freedom that he longs for us. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20 where Paul in a sense goes to the same thing to another church of God. And he says to them, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. That sits alongside this, doesn't it? And we've seen as we've rapidly worked through this section, that the law exposes sin and sin brings death. But in God's grace, he has given the Savior the solution for sin that the law could never be. And by faith in him and his life and his death and his resurrection brings us into freedom. And that freedom is enabled by the Spirit and his work in our experience if we continue to trust in God and to trust that the Spirit will do his work in us and we let him. It's going to result in fruit for God, for God's glory. 
secured at a price that we might bear fruit for God. Let's pray.